Hello, and welcome back to Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you. I'm Adam, an English teacher who went to China in 2014 and taught English in a small city near Shanghai. This podcast tells the story of my troubled first year, so if you're new to the show, I'd encourage you to start at the beginning. That said, alongside the main story, many episodes focus much more on other issues about Chinese history and culture, and you don't really need to be following the story to listen to that part. Okay, on with the show. China is a country which has an age-old romantic connection to, well, romance. It has three Valentine's Days. One is brought in wholesale from the West, as the one on February 14th. Second is on May 20th, because the numbers for May 20th, 520, are Uarling in Mandarin, which sounds a bit like Waini or I love you. So far, so romantic. These are both primarily commercial holidays. An excuse to go shopping. Not to be left out. There's also a Singles Day, which is the 11th of November, because 11/11 is the date with all the ones, all on their own, yet together. And because, well, single people have money too. Singles Day is like Black Friday on steroids, just a mass consumer event, and to some degree has been taken over by couples too. Such is the appetite for romance in China. Which brings me to the third Valentine's Day in China. This is the Qixi Festival on the seventh of July, and celebrates the story of a weaver from the heavens and a cowherd from the earth. The weaver was the daughter of a goddess who wandered off one day and met the cowherd on the land. Romance bloomed; they made a family, but angered the goddess because the cowherd was of inferior mortal stock. The weaver girl was called back to the heavens, and when the cowherd tried to find her, the goddess took a hairpin from her hair and scratched a river in the sky. This is the so-called Inghe or Silver River, known to us also as the Milky Way, a name which comes from a similarly imaginative story from Greek mythology. Anyway, forevermore, the weaver girl and cowherd boy are separated by this great river in the sky, except on the seventh day of the seventh month. When sympathetic magpies fly up and build a bridge, so they can be briefly reunited. In the early twentieth century, China was struggling to find its feet. They had overthrown the last Chinese dynasty and had a republic on their hands, but it was weak and unstable. Internal rivalries were growing, and big global powers were still pushing them around. Amongst all this, a movement grew which challenged Chinese traditions. The patriarchal power structures, the traditions in literature, the adherence to the Confucian ways of doing things—these conventions were holding China back. So went the argument. This was the new culture movement, and one of the writers in the feminist corner was Ding Ling. When Ding came of age, she was expected to marry her cousin in an arranged marriage. Instead, she ran away to Shanghai, married a poet, and became a writer. Her stories expressed a type of woman who went unseen in Chinese society at that time. In one story called Miss Sophie's Diary, the main character fantasizes not about her boring, sensible, loyal boyfriend, but about some other hot guy whose beauty was only skin deep. To her diary, she expresses her confused and chaotic inner world, feelings of selfishness, judgment, and desire. There was none of the constraint and innocence that young women were supposed to have. 
in a telling metaphor for how a woman like this would fit into society, this character, Sophie, was stuck in a tuberculosis sanatorium. In another story, the main character is a rape survivor, but also a femme fatale, who uses her sexuality to infiltrate the Japanese invaders and spy on them. Some local villagers appreciate her patriotism, but others condemn her for being promiscuous. Ding Ling was exploring Chinese society's neuroses, and shining a light on the way that women were expected to behave and think. China's strict chastity codes could have devastating consequences, but many in China were not ready to hear it. After the rape of Nanjing in 1937, which we covered in uh, episode 26, Sunset in Nanjing, many women who had survived the ordeal took their own lives because their shame was too unbearable. Later, Mao Zedong, who had said that women hold up half the sky, condemned Dingling's writings about the gender roles that the communists approved of. As was the case with so many in the arts, she was put in prison during the Cultural Revolution. For the younger generations now, especially in the cities, that old culture of women knowing their place is as alien as a distant country. The phrase, Xiaoping Bu Xiaocheng, means, shame the poor, not the harlot, or the prostitute, sex worker, the slut. I'm going with harlot. But really this phrase means that to get on in this world, one must abandon their principles. This reality of modern life has become a big topic in a China that has become untethered from the conventions of its past and has reevaluated the things it considers taboo. Contemporary China is a country which attempts to balance a 5,000-year-old culture boasting strong family values with a revolutionary break with its past and all of that baggage. Communist ideals replaced Confucian ones, and they in turn have been replaced with the singular drive for individual achievement. Status and wealth and lifestyle is important, and bad behaviour like drugs, gambling and prostitution is simply outlawed. Problem is, if you no longer have a moral doctrine with which to make sense of your rights and your wrongs, who's to say why these kinds of lifestyle choices, as we might say, are against the law? Well, in modern governance, dictating citizens' private lives is a distant priority, far behind the tight control of information. That's the important stuff, those unhelpful ideas that come in from abroad. Like communism, you might say. Anyway, since going red, China's found cause to ban green eggs and ham, Alice in Wonderland, The Big Bang Theory, Avatar, the first one, Winnie the Pooh for his uncanny resemblance to Xi Jinping. Games, consoles, pornography, of course, and jasmine flowers. And that's on top of the more famous bands like free media, protest, and non-government-affiliated trade unions. There has, of course, been a crackdown on homosexuality depicted in media in recent years, as Xi Jinping's conservative muscles become increasingly exercised. But with their eye off the ball, a lot of illicit sex, drugs, and gambling slips through the net into people's lives, if not onto their TVs. But it doesn't always slip through the net. Robert H. Davies' book, Prisoner 13498, is a grim, love-hate tale of a casual hash smuggler in far-flung Xinjiang who got caught and thrown into prison for eight and a half years, partly as a statement to the world that foreign drug fiends, especially after those opium wars, are no longer to be tolerated. And yet on any night of the week in Shanghai, some shifty fellow will offer you something to lighten the mood reeling off a concise list of drugs as if he's preparing for an exam. It's not all that's on offer on the busy streets. 
Since China embraced the open market, not only as an economic model, but as an ethical imperative, sex workers rocketed. In Shanghai, I was warned about the massage parlours and the late night tea shops, but other places don't even hide behind these facades. I'm sure the bus ride from Chongshu into Shanghai took me through a luminous district where half-naked young women sat on beds just inside the windows, bathed in pale fluorescent lights. Walking down the famous shopping street, Nanjing East Road, I was propositioned by a quiet man in a leather jacket, asking if I was interested in sexy time, sexy massage time, good time. Although I don't think it was him who I was supposed to disappear with into one of those dark hotels. The scene is typically grim. As with anywhere, debt and hardship combined with an inadequate safety net lead women into the industry. Soaring inequality creates perfect circumstances for a booming trade, with poor and aspirational women being sold and bought by more powerful men. I remember an incident in April 2016 where a woman was attacked by a pimp in a Beijing hotel after he presumed that she was a sex worker on his patch. The attack caused a national outrage, bringing this underground world briefly into the limelight. Watching the security footage on the monitors, no one came to her aid, reminding us again of that other anxiety that Chinese society has about itself, not caring about one another. We might come back to that gem later. But it's not just those forced into sex by circumstance and economic hardship, as the cliché goes. Female students in the university down the road from the cradle of elites sometimes turn to sex work for pocket money, or, as our new friend Petal would tell us, to buy more handbags. They are called Yuanjiao girls. As technology has changed our relationship with sex, so too has it changed sex's relationship with money. In 2016, Chinese media began reporting on the so-called naked loan scheme, where Chinese women use naked selfies as part of the collateral used to get loans on loosely regulated loan websites. Don't pay your loan back, and the photos will be published, goes the deal. It's like revenge porn, but the threat of the photos going public is known from the start. People on Chinese media responded to this dubious approach towards offering loans with outrage at the exploitative practice, but not everyone had sympathy for the young women who had opted to take up the deal. Social media has also enabled the new industry of live-streaming girls. Tiny young women spending their evenings chatting or singing or eating snacks, while men watch and give them digital gifts which turn into money. It's not pornographic, which would be illegal, but come on, someone's getting off here. In 2016, the government put a stop to the eating of bananas on these platforms, which, well, you don't need to be Columbo to crack this case. This massive phenomenon, which grew organically through Chinese versions of YouTube, has now been exploited by entertainment companies who buy the talent and take most of the profits. The women work long hours until the company decides they've become too old. And then they're dropped, losing, in the blink of an eye, the twin-headed monster of money and attention. These digital relationships are just the sharp end of a rupture in traditional relationships, exacerbated by the legions of men who will never find partners due to the one-child policy making surplus men. In People's Square in Shanghai, the parents of single adult children sit gloomily or mingle with others, each of them working hard to attract someone who might be interested in marrying their child. A piece of paper includes all the vitals, age, salary, height, background, property. But why bother? In urban areas where the money is flowing and the women have freedom, divorce rates are rising quickly. In the first half of the 1980s, alongside the economic liberalisation and more relaxed attitude to governing people's private lives, 
Divorce rates in cities rose by 50%. Cut to Shanghai in 2016, and the waiting list for divorce is eclipsing that of the one from marriage. Expensive house prices, migrating parents, and lewd TV shows are amongst the things that get blamed for it. More cunningly, some couples get divorced to get around home ownership rules which prohibit one family buying extra homes. Very crafty. Property is paramount in married life. I met young men in Shanghai who wouldn't even date a woman because they, these guys who were not even 20, didn't own a house. Overbearing parents and the sense of being unimpressive made the whole ordeal simply not worth the trouble. In the summer of 2013, a lowly Sujo electrician on a salary of 2,000 RMB a month, just about 200 pounds, found himself arguing heatedly with his wife, who wanted him to buy a house for their family the upshot of which was that she managed to hack off a testicle with a razor blade. Like I said, property is important. I was told that one common reason for divorce in Jiangsu province was arguments about what name the child should have. Traditionally, the wife keeps her name and the child adopts the father's name. Nowadays, more women are keen to give their name to the child, and her parents are even more fervent on the issue. I had one student, John, who was deeply affected by the breakup of his parents, their lack of contact with his father, and the quote-unquote weird new woman on the scene. As a child of divorced parents, I sympathised with this. Perhaps in China, the soaring divorce rate could be eased by lessening the pressure on young adults to get married so quickly in the first place, a tradition which has yet to subside. The tendency to marry the first decent chap which comes along is in stark contradiction with the ever-growing social hedonism. The two principles quickly clash, and people get hurt. Religious morals, Confucian morals, communist morals, they all bite the dust in modern China. Quiet sexual revolutions taking place while the powers that be have been frantically tracking Winnie the Pooh memes. Sex before marriage has rocketed in the past three decades, since being made legal in the 90s, although still many don't go there. Also, swingers have orgies despite this still being illegal. A Beijing subway carriage erupted into applause when a man proposed to his boyfriend, although gay marriage isn't legal either. While we in the UK sometimes worry ourselves about the unrealistic representations of people in advertising, pastry models and the like, in China, sex continues to sell, albeit without getting particularly risque. The long legs of perfectly pale beauties kick out into the streets from the billboards, selling an array of Chinese and foreign brands to overworked, insecure commuters. TV personalities and news anchors all have the Baifu Mei look, white rich beautiful, setting the beauty standards for all regular women folk out there. A few years ago, a meme started going around where women would take pictures of themselves with an A4 piece of paper on their abdomen, showing how thin they are. Another fad involved seeing how many coins could fit into the groove in front of her shoulder. That one basically shows how scrawny someone is, which was seen as a good thing. The public debate about beauty standards is apparently getting healthier, but, broadly speaking, in China, beauty is white and thin. Chinese pop stars gyrate on stage, although with nothing like the same sense of aggression as, say, Cardi B or, I don't know, Christina Aguilera. Indeed, I expect some people would listen to this and say, hey, yeah, what about the West? We're not exactly saints where it comes to sex. Porn is widespread and fully accepted part of the internet world. Sex work is no longer taboo. Marriages break down frequently. Many couples don't even bother getting married. 
and polyamory is a lifestyle choice. All that's true, but none of that is the point of this episode. The point is that, in this authoritarian country, with a conservative state ideology, the powers that be haven't been able to prevent wide-scale liberalisation of this aspect of life. Untethered from the moral outrages of the past, it's not having money which is the shameful thing. Hence the phrase, shame the poor, not the harlot. And indeed, the poor are shamed and pitied and ignored and insulted. But this also gives society something to reflect upon, to wonder about the vast wealth that has recently come and what is done to the Chinese mindset. Occasionally stories emerge which bring this question into focus such as in 2019 when a young woman sold her twin babies for about $9,000. One buyer for each baby. She used her money to pay off debts and buy a new phone. The estranged father returned on hearing what his former lover had done. Yeah, he wanted his share of the money. Next time we stick with this subject, but look back in time to the, quote, most respectable prostitute in Chinese history. And... The all-or-nothing life that comes with being a concubine.